Hello there. We are in uh, Numbers, chapter 32. This is about inheritance. Inheritance is an interesting topic because with an inheritance, you get something that you didn't work for or deserve, and now it's all yours simply because you're in the line of inheritance, an undeserved blessing, although sometimes inheritances turn into massive family fights, unfortunately. Numbers 32 to 36 are about getting the inheritance ready for Israel. We're going to be looking at a big chunk tonight because it really you know, is better as we're doing this survey of historical narrative. There's some things that it's just better off to deal with it, uh, larger chunks, narrative, and then suck out the theological principles. This is not like going through Paul's letter to the Romans. So we're going to be uh, looking through these chapters, reading through it, and then making comments, but really pulling some, um, uh, some great application out of it in terms of what it means for us. Now, chapter 32 deals with uh, a special situation of two tribes that wanted a special inheritance. Chapter 3 is a review of Israel's history over the last 40 years. And then chapter 3 gives instructions about the boundaries. So the first thing here in chapter 32 is a special inheritance situation dealing with the tribes of Reuben and Gad. In the immediate historical context, what has happened is that Israel has come to the eastern edge of the Jordan Valley, where in ancient times you had the countries called Ammon, Moab, and Edom, and there were other people groups uh, that were out there in uh, those regions. But uh, that was called the Transjordan, and we remember that uh, when they went through this area, God said, just pass through, I'm not giving you this, these regions, your region is the land of Canaan. But as they went through this area, uh, they were attacked, and there were two significant attacks that just happened back in Numbers chapter 21. One of them is that they were attacked by a king named Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the other one was Og, the king of Bashan. It's both in Numbers chapter 21. These were basically Canaanite kings that uh, had their you know, countries over there on that eastern edge of the Jordan Valley. They attacked Israel, and God gave Israel a victory over both of them. Well, you know, you've heard the expression, to the victor go the spoils, right? That's the way it is throughout all human history. Especially if you have been the one attacked in war, uh, if you win the battle after being attacked, their land becomes your possession. Their goods become your possession. Well, this is basically what Reuben, the tribes of Reuben and Gad are going to do. They're going to come back to Moses and say, hey, uh, you know, we just wiped these guys out. Let us have their land as our inheritance instead of uh, taking our portion of inheritance inside the land of Canaan, which is on the western edge of the Jordan Valley. Well, let's go ahead and read again. We're going to read through stuff, make comments, and then pull a bunch of application out of it. So it begins in verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and Gilead that was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elelai, uh, Sebam, Nebo, and Beon, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. 
Father, we thank you for your word. You spoke by your spirit through Moses and the other prophets, and you have uh, given it to us so that we can know you and understand uh, your greatness and the greatness of your saving grace. So use this time tonight to help us understand your greatness and love you better. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things to understand. One of them is that uh, these regions were very, very rich pasture lands. Matter of fact, when we talk about this place called Bashan, there is an interesting verse in Amos chapter 4 verse 1 where Amos is making a very severe mockery of the, uh, of the fat women in Israel that godless pagan women in Israel and uh, he uses the word cow for them. In Amos chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. <laughs> no political correctness here, right? Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria. So he's talking here about godless women in the northern kingdom. You godless cows of Bashan, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Give me something to drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness, the days are coming upon you when they're going to take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. So uh, just the point, you know, the, the idea of cows of Bashan was proverbial. Why? Because it was such a rich pasture land over there in that part of um, the, the, uh, the eastern side of the Jordan Valley that the cows were really, really fat. It talks about bulls of Bashan, cows of Bashan. It was about 2,000 feet in elevation. So when you come from the Jordan Valley that goes all the way down to 1,300 feet below sea level, and then you get up to about 2,000 feet elevation, it produces a lot of rainfall, and it's really, really rich grazing territory. The other thing that you have to understand is, is that the tribes of Reuben and Gad, for some reason, had an unusually large amount of livestock. As you look at Numbers chapter 32, you don't quite pick it up in uh, the English text, but the very first word in the Hebrew text of Numbers 32 is the word livestock. The livestock was great from Reuben and Gad. So for some reason, these guys just had a huge amount of cattle and goats and sheep and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, uh, they're looking at it from a very practical standpoint. They're saying, you know, we got a ton of uh, livestock. This is great ranching territory. Moses, can we have our inheritance right here? It was a polite request, and it was a good request. Well, it didn't quite go as they expected. Verse 6, Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land 40 years earlier. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and they saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years of old upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for they did not follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they followed the Lord fully. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. 
Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For you, if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you'll destroy all these people. Moses lost it on these guys, but his, his anger was not so much about the land itself, but he's looking at the impact of what's going to happen if they refuse to come and wage war. Uh, it's going to be devastating to the people of Israel, and they already went through this 40 years earlier. Moses knew that they were going to have to be a unified nation if they're going to go in and fight against these Canaanite tribes that lived in the land of Canaan. So he accuses them of being guilty of the same kind of sin that uh, the former generation committed 40 years earlier. Verses 16 and 19, the tribal leaders of Reuben and Gad answer back to Moses to make it clear that he's misunderstanding their intention. Verse 16, they came near to him and said, we will build our sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their places while our little ones live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance, for we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan on the east. So these tribal leaders wanted Moses to understand that they were not trying to uh, not be supportive to the war effort. They were not intending to not go and fight. They just looked at this portion and said, let us settle right here. We'll make sure that uh, you know, our families and our livestock are not going to run off, and then we will join you in war. They explain this, and Moses comes back to them in verse 20. Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all of your armed men cross over to the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel. And this land shall be yours for possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you've sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. That's a verse we like to remember, huh? <laughs> your sin will find you out. Uh, build yourself cities for your little ones and sheepfolds for your sheep and do what you have promised. So basically here's what Moses says. All right, go ahead. Carry out your plan, but if you break your promise, God is going to come and deal with you. With this, verse 25, the leaders agreed to uh, the, the, uh, to the um, you know, terms of the deal. Sons of Gad and sons of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, Your servants will do just as the Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all of our cattle shall remain in the cities of Gilead, while your servants, everyone who is armed for war, will cross over in the presence of the Lord to battle, just as my Lord says. Time for war, and that means you need to get armed. You know, the word for armed, the Hebrew word, means to be girded. And you know, you've seen the pictures of uh, the ancient Near East, where you know they have the big belt, uh, you know, for all of their weapons. That's girding yourself for war. Is that you put on this hero's belt? Uh, where you have all of your weapons inside of your belt. And this was very common in all of the ancient world. You find it in the Semitic world, in Egypt, in Greece. You see even in the Bible that when Christ comes, it says that he's girded for war. As you look at passages like Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19. That's just kind of standard warfare equipping. 
Well, the agreements are made, so now it's time for war. So let's read through verses uh, 20 to 42. Moses gave the command concerning them to Eleazar, Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Moses said, If the sons of Gad and Reuben, everyone who is armed for battle, will cross over with you over the Jordan in the presence of the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. But if they will not cross over with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. Sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We will cross over with you in the presence of the Lord to the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us across the Jordan. So Moses gave to them, to the sons of Gad and Reuben, and also to the half-tribe of Joseph's son Manasseh. So it was actually two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and then Manasseh took half of their inheritance on that side and half of it in the land of Canaan. Uh, and Moses said, We will give them the kingdom of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan, the land with its cities, territories, and the surrounding land. Sons of Gad built Dibon, Ataroth, Aroer, Ataroth, Shofan, Jazer, Jagbeah, and Beth Nimrah, Beth Haran, as fortified cities and sheepfolds. Sons of Reuben built Heshbon and Ele. Ele and Kiriathiam, and Nebo, and Baal Meon, their names being changed. And Sibmon, they gave other names to the cities which they built. The sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. So Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he lived in it. Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and took its towns and called them Havoth Jair. Nobah went and took Kenneth and its village and called it Nobai after his own name. Now remember, this region that we're talking about on the east side, this was not part of the original land that God swore to Abraham. When God swore this land to Abraham, back in Genesis chapters 12 and following, you know, more or less, it's everything on the western side of the Jordan Valley, uh, basically going from Syria all the way down to uh, the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. It did not include those regions on the eastern side, but their inheritance was being expanded because of the victories from war. Let's just think about this, though, for a minute as we kind of like pull a little application out of all this, that God is graciously giving its inheritance, the nation of Israel, its inheritance. And as a nation, as a corporate nation, this includes a land. You and I do not have a national inheritance. Christians do not have a national inheritance, a land inheritance. Now, um, when we return with Jesus Christ, the whole world is going to be ours because everything is His and He shares everything with His people. So, you know, it's not as though we are not going to have anything tangible that's part of this inheritance, but this is going to be what happens when we're in resurrected glory and we return with Christ. The whole world is going to be ours <laughs> because it's His and He shares His inheritance. This is what it says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. The people, the saints take possession of the kingdom. But Israel, as a nation, had a specific land inheritance. Now, there's more to the Abrahamic covenant than simply the land. Because if you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, there were three primary components to the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. I'm giving you this land. And God showed him, God in, in Genesis 13, God said, Abraham, look north, south, east, west. Look at every direction. This is what I'm giving to you. Uh, but it also included in that Abrahamic covenant 
the promise that there was going to be a mighty nation that would come from Abraham. And then he said, and there's going to be a special blessing that comes to you, and it's going to go through you to the whole world. In you, all the families of the earth shall get blessed. And ultimately, ultimately what this promise is about is redemption through Jesus Christ who comes from the family of Israel. So the dynamics of inheritance as you compare the idea of Israel as a nation and individual believers is uh, similar in that there's a gracious inheritance, but it's different because we are not a nation. We are individuals getting saved by grace, but the nature of our inheritance is different than that of God's work with Israel. Similarities, but differences. When you think about Ephesians chapter 1, um, remember how in verses 3 through 14 there's a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It doesn't say that, hey, you know what, he's giving us the front range you know, as our inheritance, or he's giving us the land of Canaan. We have every spiritual blessing. We have redemption, forgiveness of sins. We have an eternal uh, possession of an inheritance in the presence of Jesus Christ. So what happens in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, in verses 3, 3 through 6, if you remember, there is a distinct emphasis upon the work of God the Father, the electing grace of God the Father. Uh, he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. How? It says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, He predestined us to become adopted sons. And all of this, it says in verse 6, is to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He bestowed upon us in the Beloved. All of it brings the glory back to God. But verses 3 to 6 talk about the, what we will call the electing grace of God the Father. He predestines us to sonship. And then in verses 7 to 12, the focus is not upon God the Father, but upon Christ the Son, the redeeming grace of Christ the Son. In Him we have redemption, forgiveness of sins through His blood. And then it comes down to verse 12, and it says all of this is to the praise of His glory. And then in verses 13 to 14, the focus shifts from Christ the Son to the sealing grace of God the Spirit, how the Spirit, when you believe, you're sealed with Him, with the Holy Spirit, who's given as the pledge of our inheritance. He's given as the pledge. The word pledge means the down payment. The Holy Spirit is God saying, I swear to you, I am going to bring you into my presence in resurrection glory. I'm giving you my Spirit. It's my promise that I'm going to finish this whole process. So we have an inheritance. That inheritance is that we're going to enter into the presence of Jesus Christ in resurrected glory one day. So as you look at the grace of God at work in Israel, this uh, grace very, very distinctly uh, includes this idea of a land inheritance that God swore to them. But it's all grace. It, it was grace back then. Still grace today. <laughs> Always is. That brings us to chapter 33. Wow, can you believe that? In 15 minutes, we went through an entire chapter. And we even went to the New Testament. Um, chapter 33 brings us to a second inheritance instruction. This one is a review of the last 40 years. Why do we need to go back and look at the last 40 years? Grace, 
God is going to remind them, I was with you the whole way. You know, and this is, happens in Deuteronomy. He says, in Deuteronomy, God says, I was bringing you through that whole thing. They need to remember. So verses 1 to 4, it says, These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. Look at this. God said, Moses, keep a record of everything that happens. Yes, Lord. We call this inspiration, verbal inspiration. God says, write everything down. This is, happens numerous times throughout the uh, Pentateuch, where we see God saying, write everything down, and this is exactly what they did. Inspired scripture. Write all this down. Verse 2, Moses recorded their starting place according to their journeys by the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting places. They journeyed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the next day, after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. Well, the Egyptians were burying their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. The Lord also executed judgments on their gods. The start of the Exodus comes right here. Now, you know, the Passover was on the 14th day of the month, so it was that evening when God struck the firstborn of Egypt, and then it was the very next morning when they headed out. What a sight that must have been, because, you know, Egypt, everybody throughout the land of Egypt are burying their firstborn son. And Israel just picks up their possessions and starts marching out, and nobody did a thing. Matter of fact, the Egyptians said, here, we're going to give you a bunch of wealth, a bunch of silver. Take it, leave, get out of here, never come back. What a sight that must have been. The journey continues, verse 5. Then the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses and camped in Sukkoth. They journeyed from Sukkoth and camped in Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. They journeyed from Etham, turned back to Pihiroth, which faces baal Siphon. And they camped before Migdol. They journeyed from before Hahiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. This first section is uh, here, verses 5 to 8, is where we see them actually setting out. And all of this is a very abbreviated account. And uh, one, it doesn't, we don't know every one of these place names. When they went throughout, you know, the, the wilderness, the Sinai Peninsula, we don't know every single place exactly where it, where it is. Some of them we do, others we don't. This is 3,400 years ago. It's not meant to be an exhaustive history, but it is meant to say, look at how God guided them and provided to them. But God's grace was with them. I mean, he crushed Egypt with 10 plagues, the 10th of which, the death of the firstborn. God gave Israel great riches from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel did nothing. God brought Israel, Egypt to its knees. The Egyptians said, here, take all this money and get out of here. They did nothing. God was doing it all. They crossed the Red Sea. You know, in, in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not fear, because here's what's happening. They're at the edge of the Red Sea, and then the Egyptian armies want to come and recapture them. Now, you remember that the angel of the Lord, Christ himself, was standing in between this pillory fire at nighttime and uh, this uh, cloud in the daytime, Christ was keeping the Egyptians from attacking them. And then God said, tell the people to just cross the water, even before God parted. Start moving ahead. 
That's, you know, a lot of times, you know, you just have to do what you know is the thing that you got to do, right? Yeah, yeah, but how are we going to do it? Just obey God. So, Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you have seen today, you'll never see them again forever. Take a look. You'll never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And that's exactly what God did. God brought them through the Red Sea. God took them into the wilderness. Hey, there's no food. There's no water. Got that covered too. Going to be manna for the next 40 years, right? A little quail, but that turned out kind of bad for them. Manna for the next 40 years. You know, it wasn't probably something that... Uh, you looked forward to every day, but it sustained them, right? I mean, you know, they said, oh, all we have is this man. It's kind of like being stuck on Gilligan's Island, you know, coconut cream, you know, um, omelets, coconut cream pie. It was always coconuts. What else do you expect when you're on Gilligan's Island, you know? But God was providing. And God is with us. You know, God gave us atonement, complete forgiveness by a substitute lamb. Jesus Christ took our judgment. God, by His grace, if you're here and if you're in Christ, it's because God opened your heart to believe in His Son. And then the Spirit of God came to indwell you if you have trusted in Christ. The Spirit of God sealed you till the day of redemption. And God's grace is preserving us until the day when Christ returns. It's all grace. It was grace for them. It's grace for you and me. Verses 9 to 13, the journey continues. From Mara, they came to Elim, and at Elim there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there. They journeyed from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. They journeyed from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. That's Sin, uh, a moon god. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dafka. They journeyed from Dafka and camped at Alush. Again, uh, there's not a whole lot of comment I want to make about all these places. You know, we could find bits and pieces of information and say, oh, well, this, you know, this location here is 3.6 miles from this spot, but I don't want to take you in that direction. One thing is certain, God's grace was giving them everything they needed with food, with water, with guidance and protection. And, you know, we even read in Deuteronomy that their shoes lasted throughout the entire 40 years. Not too shabby. I mean, I, I bought a pair of shoes when I got out of the hospital, you know, last uh, April or whatever it was, because mine were all falling apart. They lasted one year. What do you expect from $35 from Walmart? But they lasted for a year. I don't know, I thought that was pretty good. But these guys, their shoes lasted for 40 years. It's all grace. Verse 14, the journey continues. They journeyed from Alush, and then they camped at Rephidim, and now it was there that the people had no water to drink. They journeyed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kivroth Hatavah. They journeyed from Kivroth Hatavah and camped at Hazaroth. They journeyed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. They journeyed from Rithma and camped at Ramon Perez. Uh, they journeyed from Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. They journeyed from Libna and camped at Rissa. Uh, they journeyed from Rissa and camped at Kehlatha. They journeyed from Kehlatha and camped at Mount Sefer. They journeyed from Mount Sefer to Harada, from Harada to Makhiloth, from Makhiloth to Tachath, from Tachath to Terah, from Terah to Mithkah, from Mithkah to Hashmonah. They journeyed from Hashmonah and camped at Mosheroth, 
from Mosheroth, they camped at Bene Yakan, from Bene Yakam to Hor Hagid Gad, from Hor Hagidad to Jathpatha, from there to Abrona, from there to Ezion Geber, from there to the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. Kadesh is the edge of the land of Canaan in the south. And they journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor at the edge of the land of Edom. A lot of camping, right? <laughs> you know, we, uh, I don't know, we, uh, most of our vacation time over the last you know, 40 years has been camp tent trailers, you know? Uh, because, you know, we can't, have not been able to afford expensive vacations. But, you know, we've gotten a lot of use out of those tent trailers. That first one we had, I'll tell you what, that duct tape sure came in handy. You know, when we got done coming back from a trip all the way up the coastline, all the way up Highway 1 through California and then up into Oregon. And, uh, you know, we were having to duct tape the whole thing. And we were so broke, you know, when we came back, I've said this before, you know, when we were coming back across the Golden Great Bridge, I was completely broke. Uh, and, you know, so you got to pay money to get across the Golden Gate Bridge. And I said, I don't have any money. They said, well, you got to pay money. I said, I have no money, no money in my bank account. And after about 10 minutes, the guy said, just go, you know. <laughs> then we got back to L.A., and I sold the tent trailer for 50 bucks, and they people abandoned it in the uh, L.A. airport parking lot, you know. <laughs> but these guys went to a lot of KOA campgrounds. I mean... We don't know where all these KOA campgrounds were in their journeys, but um, it's all true. The real places, real people, real history. God was caring for his people. You can't explain Israel unless you believe what God says. You know, it's all true. Verse 38, this brings us to another big milestone. Aaron, the priest, went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come down from the land of Egypt. On the first day uh, in the fifth month, Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now you remember that Aaron is three years older than Moses. Now Moses died when he was 120. Aaron dies 123. This is the end of an entire generation. We're coming to the end of an entire generation. Aaron died at a place called Mount Hor. One dictionary says Mount Hor has been traditionally equated with Jabal Harun, Harun, kind of an uh, Arabic word, Jabal Harun, the mountain of Aaron. You know, our brother Anthony here, uh, you know, one of his, uh, in growing up, his name was Harun, Aaron. It's the highest mountain in that region. It's down by Petra. It's about 4,500 feet above sea level. There's an Islamic shrine at the top of it today, and then down at the bottom of the mountain, there's a Christian, some Christian ruins that date back to about the 5th to the 7th centuries. But on top of it, there is this Islamic uh, shrine. So this is an end of a generation. But here's what we can say. Despite Israel failure, and when you read the book of Numbers, there was a lot of failure, right? How about when you look at your own life? You know, sins, failures, blowing it, all this stuff, and yet... If Christ is your Lord and Savior, He's still with you, right? You know, His grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. This is the nature of God's grace. 
Verse 40 makes a brief comment about the, something, something that happened after Aaron died. It says, the Canaanite king of Arad. Now we read all of this stuff earlier back in the book of Numbers. The king of Arad who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan heard about the coming of the sons of Israel. So here's what happened uh, is that uh, after Aaron died, they got attacked by a Canaanite king. And this is actually in the land of Canaan, the king of Arad. There's a place down there called Tel Arad. And we went through this when we were um, doing a tour in a study group down there down in the southern part. So they got attacked by a Canaanite king. What happened? They got defeated. Why? Because God said, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Verse 41. Now, you know, I was going to go to Psalm 103 at this point and, you know, read from Psalm 103. But we already read through it. And that saves me time. <laughs> But, you know, the point that I was just going to bring out is that, you know, when you read about God's grace sustaining his people here in Israel, you read Psalm 103 and David says, God's grace is wonderful. He sustains those who love him and trust him and fear him. It's always that way. Just trust the Lord, right? Just trust the Lord and follow him. And all the other stuff will work itself out. Get anxious, get uptight, like, oh no, what about this, what about that? Look at the big picture. Trust the Lord, serve Him, follow Him. It'll work out. Verse 41, then they journeyed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmonah. They journeyed from Zalmonah, camped at Punon, from Punon to Oboth, from Oboth to Iye Avarim on the border of Moab. From Iim to Dibon Gad, from Dibon Gad to Almon Diblathayim, from Almon Diblathayim to Abarim before Nebo. They journeyed from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jesh Emoth as far as Avel Shittim in the plains of Moab. So, what, what has happened here is that uh, Moses has now taken them. All the way, he's recounted and summarized all the way to bring them to right where they're at, at this place right here. Now remember, it was here in the plains of Moab, right before this happened right here is where Balaam, well, Balak, the king of uh, Moab, had hired Balaam, the false prophet, to put a curse on Israel. That didn't turn out well either, not for them. God was with his people. It brings us to a summary Verse 50, then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, when you cross over to the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you shall drive out. The word yarash means to dispossess in certain verbal stems. It either means to possess or to dispossess. Here is dispossess them. You shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones, destroy. Now, you know, when we go to museums today, we look at stuff, if you've ever been in, you know, world museums, and then you see all these ancient, you know, statues, and you think, oh, this is cool. All this stuff has been preserved. God said, wipe it all out. Utterly wipe it all out. Destroy it all. Destroy their figured stones. Destroy their molten images. It's all pagan uh, pagan uh, Canaanite worship. Demolish all their high places. You shall take possession of the land and you shall live in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land 
By lot, according to your families, to the larger you shall give more inheritance, to the smaller you shall give less. Wherever the law falls to anyone, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, it will come about that those whom you let remain will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land which you live. And as I plan to do to them, I'll do it to you. This is holy war. God says, utterly annihilate them. And you know, as we talked about this last week, this is harsh stuff. You know, from our perspective, this is harsh stuff. But sin is harsh, and God's judgment upon sin is harsh. The key point, though, I think to remember is that you know, what God said to do to those sinners is exactly what you and I deserve. You've got to understand that. I mean, if you're going to preach the gospel to somebody, they have to know that they're sinners who need a Savior, just like you and I are sinners that need a Savior. And God tells them, if you don't drive these Canaanites out, they're going to destroy you guys. And this is exactly what we begin to see happening as soon as that generation that took possession of the land, you read in Judges chapter 2, as soon as that generation died out, within, within a generation, they began to worship all the Baals and the Canaanite Baal worship. Dear friends, this is exactly what we see happening before our eyes only I think we are worse than even the Canaanites that were there 3,400 years ago. Complete insanity. USA Today took a man whose name is Richard Levine, and they named him to be Woman of the Year because Richard Levine calls himself Rachel Levine. And USA Today said, well, this is Woman of the Year. Joe Biden appointed Richard Levine, a man who calls himself Rachel Levine. Joe Biden appointed Richard Levine to be the Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We're sick puppies, man. I mean, this is really, really twisted, sick stuff. Then, John Daniel Davidson, senior editor for the Federalist magazine, said, well, no, this is still a man. So Twitter locks John Daniel Davidson out of Twitter. We're not going to let you talk on Twitter because you said that Richard Levine is still a man. And then, have you ever heard of the Babylon Bee? It's a satire site, you know, on the internet. And uh, the Babylon Bee said, Rachel Levine, man of the year. So Twitter locked out the Babylon Bee. You know, what's happening is, is that Satan has such a stronghold upon our pagan culture at every level of politics and, and, um, and entertainment and news that we're not even being allowed to say, that's not a man. You know, if it's a man that's pretending to be a woman, you know, or a woman pretending to be a man, you're not even being permitted to say, no, that's not true. It's just weird. I mean, everything is just so twisted. And then I mentioned this morning that, you know, just a couple days ago, our federal government, Joe Biden, the president, gave full endorsement for things like sex transformation surgery for minors. These people should be locked up and beaten for what they're doing to kids. I have no apologies about that. I mean, these people, this is child abuse. 
This is, our country needs a purging because this is exactly what God did to the Canaanites. You know, way back in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 20, God told Abraham, Abraham, your people are going to live in a foreign land for 400 years. And then I'm going to bring you out and you're going to bring a judgment upon the Canaanites because the, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Once their wickedness has come to full measure, you're going to be the ones who execute judgment on my behalf. And God said to them, if you don't deal with these guys and completely drive them out, they are going to be your ruin. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 34, chapter 34, a shorter chapter uh, that gives some instructions about the inheritance. Notice what we have here, chapter 34. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, Ha'eretz Canaan, and it has the article on it, Ha'eretz, the land of Canaan. This is a very distinct, well-identified piece of geography. When we look at ancient records from Egypt, for example, and Egypt was always you know, doing stuff back and forth up in, uh, up in that part of the world, and so were other countries like the Assyrians and so on. But this was a very distinctly identifiable piece of real estate. And what God is telling him is, this is what I'm giving you. I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. He outlines the four borders here in verses uh, 1 through 29. Verses 1 through 5 is the southern border. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the sons of Israel and tell them when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan according to the borders. Your southern sector shall extend from the wilderness of Zin along the side of Edom. Your southern border shall extend from the end of the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea, eastward. Then your border shall turn the direction from the south to the ascent of Akrabim, which means scorpion, and continue to Zin. And its termination shall be to the south of Kadesh Barnea. It'll reach to Hazar Adar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its termination will be at the sea, that is the Mediterranean Sea. Well understood boundaries at that ancient time. God is fulfilling them right now, and He's telling them, This is your portion. Verses 6 to 9, we see the western and northern border. As for the western border, you shall have the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean. Mediterranean is right there, that's your western border. And this shall be your north border. You shall draw your border from the great sea to Mount Hor. You shall draw a line from Mount Hor to Lebo Hamath. And the termination of the border shall be at Zedad. And the border shall proceed to Ziphron. Its termination shall be at Hazar Anan. This will be your north border. So the west border is real easy. And the northern border is marked off. Some of these places we know specifically. Other places we're not quite sure of the ancient location exactly. But uh, they were known back then. Verse 10 to 15, we have the eastern border. For your eastern border, you shall draw a line from Hazaranan to Shepham. The border shall go from Shepham to Riblah to the east side of Ain. Uh, the border shall go and reach the slope of the east side of the Sea of Kinnereth, which is the Sea of Galilee. See the word Kinnereth? Uh, the Hebrew word, it means guitar. Uh, because the Sea of Galilee is kind of in the shape of a harp, a guitar. Um, and the border shall go down to the Jordan, and its termination shall be at the Salt Sea. This will be your land according to its border. So Moses commanded the sons of Israel, saying, This is the land that you are to portion by lot as a possession, which the Lord commanded you to the nine and a half tribes, for the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh have theirs on the other side. 
God, by his grace, is giving them the land that he swore, a well-known land. Now, I want to give you a little bit here. We've got about just a couple minutes here. Um, um, finish it up. But uh, what is the history of this land? You know, when God gave them this inheritance at this point, uh, this is fulfilling a promise that he began giving to Abraham about 700 years earlier, way back in like 2100 BC. So now they're coming out of Egypt. God is giving them a land. God says, wage war upon them, dispossess them. I'm going to use you to judge them. Take it. Is that fair? Don't you ever say that God is not fair. He's always fair. When he judges sin, he's always righteous. And God used Israel to judge. Okay, And God gave them an undeserved blessing. God, by his grace, gave them mercy and grace. Is it fair to God to give mercy to some? You better say yes, otherwise you have no reason to uh, you know, uh, say that Christ is my Lord and Savior. Okay, now that land, Israel lived in the land for the next 800 years until 605 B.C. when God said, you guys have been ticking me off for 800 years and you have broken the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, so I am going to judge you. I'm going to spew you out of the land until the day when I bring a restoration. And he says, I will bring a restoration. So the Babylonians came in in 605 and God spewed them out of the land. Broken covenant. Now, God allowed them to come back after the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, but this was not a restoration in the new covenant. God was just allowing them to come back in. They were there for the next 500 years, and then God sent them their king, the Messiah, and they said, we will not have this man. Let's kill him. And God scattered them again. So what happened at the first, in the first century and the early part of the second century, God used the Romans to once again bring a severe judgment upon the people of Israel. In the Jewish wars of 66 to 70, Josephus tells us that there were over a million Jews that got killed by the Romans. But they were, they were still living there in the land. Another, the last major rebellion took place from 132 to 135 in what's called the... Uh, Bar Kokhba rebellion that we talked about a few weeks ago, and uh, about 580,000 Jewish soldiers got killed in the year 132 to 135. And what Hadrian the emperor did is that he then uh, forbid any of the Jews to go back and live in Jerusalem, and he even renamed the entire land. He called it uh, Aelia Capitolina. And it also gave it the name, well, Jerusalem called Elia Capitolina, the eastern capital. And then he called the entire land Palestina, based on the word Philistine from the Philistines who used to live there. The word Palestine was given by the Roman emperor to try to basically erase the identity of the Jews from their own land. And now, Jews continue to live there. Uh, you know, for the next, uh, you know, several hundred years, you still had Jews living in Israel. You also had all the Christians that lived there and whatever else other kinds of uh, different groups lived there. But what happened is that in 636, the Islamic invasion came upon the land of Israel. And Islam basically took control of, um, of that land in 636. They built the Dome of the Rock there. Their, their first major structure was completed in 689, the Dome of the Rock, the build gold dome, big gold dome. Islam basically came to have the dominant control over that land from 636 onward. But it never became somebody else's country. It was just occupied. 
When you look at the Crusades that started in 1098, the European Christians said, well, we have to drive these infidels out. We're the kingdom of God. Uh, No, Roman Catholic Church is not the kingdom of God. But this was their false theology. They looked at Christianity, the church, being the kingdom of God. And so, you know, they waged a holy war against Islam, and they came in, and over a series of crusades, they uh, drove out the Muslims, the Muslims came back and took possession. So it went back and forth several times. The last crusade ended in, um, the, the crusades went for about 200 years. Now, something happened is, is that uh, you, you have the shifting of Islam that took place uh, during this time period. And um, in 15, basically about the year 1516, is there was the rise of what's called the Ottoman Empire, which was the Islamic Caliphate centered out of Turkey. If you look at the last 900 years, the Islamic Caliphate kind of varied in different places, Egypt, Arabia. But the Ottoman Empire came into existence basically around numbers, uh, and this is not exact, but like 1500. And so what you had is, the Ottoman Empire, the Islamic Caliphate, came to have domination over the land of Israel. But then something happened. In World War I, they decided to take sides with Germany and the Axis powers. But what happened to Germany and all the Axis powers? They got defeated by Britain and the other allied forces. The Ottoman Empire disappeared. And the most powerful nation on the face of the planet, Great Britain, gained control over that whole region. To the victor go the spoils. And so Great Britain gained control of that. And in 1917, Great Britain issued something called the Balfour Declaration. And they said, you Jews need to be able to go back and have your country and your land. And they gave them permission to do that. Now, there was a series of migrations that had already begun to take place Uh, about uh, two or three decades earlier called the Aliyahs, where they were going up and migrations were coming back. But as soon as the Jews began migrating out of Europe back into this area, the Islamic world began to attack them and try to destroy them. But in 1917, Britain said, go back, you can have your country. There were numerous attacks by the Muslims over the next 20 years. And then along came 1936, 1939, and something called World War II. And we know what happened to the Jews during World War II. When World War II ended, this is when the United Nations came into existence. And the United Nations said, these guys have to have their own country. <laughs> because, you know, they almost got annihilated here by, uh, uh, by uh, the European world. So on May 14, 1947, the United Nations said, you have one year. If you want to become a state again, you have one year. You can... Uh, declare your own independence and statehood. On May 14th, 1948, they said, we declare ourselves a state. And then on May 15th, 1948, about 10 Muslim nations invaded them and tried to wipe them out. Didn't work out well. 1948, 1956, the Six-Day War in 1967, the Yom Kippur War in 1973, Islamic world keeps trying to wipe them out. Doesn't work out. Why? Because God swore that this land is going to be theirs forever. So, come down here. Verses 16 to 29, last little section. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall apportion the land to you for inheritance. Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one leader of every tribe to apportion the land for your inheritance. These are the names of the men, the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the tribe of the sons of Simeon, Samuel, uh, the son of Ahimud, of the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad, the son of Kislon, of the tribe of Dan, Buki, the son of Jogli, of Joseph, of the sons of Manasseh, a leader, Haniel, the son of Ephod, of the tribes of Ephraim, a leader, Kemuel, the son of Shiftan, from uh, Zebulun, Elizaphan, the son of Parnach, uh, from Issachar, Paltiel, from Asher, Ahihud, uh, from the tribe of Naphtali, Pedahel, the son of Ah. Mehud, these are those whom the Lord commanded to apportion the inheritance. God's grace was at work. I mean, this is the whole big message in all of this. Uh, God's grace was at work. He gave them this land because he swore it to them. They survived throughout 2,000 years of being driven from their own country. 1,900 years, right? What other nation has existed for 1,900 years? And then they became a nation again. Guess what? God's not done with them. That's why they're still there. Listen, God's grace is at work with you if you are willing to trust his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Not because I've done anything. All I deserve is to be whipped. And now that I got my mom living here and my sister, I have somebody to remind me about how bad I need to be whipped all the time, you know? (laughs) Telling all these stories about me. And they're all true, you know? But, you know, when we, when we think about grace, like Psalm 103, you know, what, what happens when we, when we think about grace, it should break our hearts and cause us to be broken and humble, not to be ever self-righteous. It should cause us to be thankful. It also should give us hope because we know that from beginning to end, it's grace that saves us and sustains us. And so when we do stumble and fall and smash our face on the ground, God says, get up. I'm with you. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your promises. They never fail. Thank you, O God, for these saints who are here tonight to be fed by uh, the truth of your grace. I pray that you would encourage them with uh, the truth of Christ and what he has done and what he's going to do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.